If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheets are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or add a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheets bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheets for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. sleepcoolnow.com 1212 This is our number 2 of the World According to Zig podcast for this September 10th 2017. My name is John Ziegler. I'm the host of the show where you can still get the truth about news, politics, media, sports, and culture from a true conservative perspective in this world turned upside down. Our number two is generally where we uh, have a special guest, although I can't promise that we're always going to have a special guest because, you know, <laughs> I do this alone. I do this for free. And we've been doing this now for uh, nine months. And it's uh, getting more difficult to, to find really good guests. But we've had some great guests recently and another great one today. My very good friend, Congressman John Yarmouth, a Democrat from Louisville, Kentucky, where I used to host a radio show and together we used to host a, a TV show, uh, is going to be our guest in just a moment. And it's the perfect time. And in fact, John agreed to join us at the last minute. I, I switched a guest around who had to leave because of hurricane coverage of Hurricane Irma. And I really wanted to speak to John because this week really was the week that legislatively, uh, you know, Donald Trump effectively became, as I've been predicting, Arnold Schwarzenegger. I'm very capable of changing to anything I want to change to. The reality is, though, he might not even have a plan because we all know that with Trump, you know, he's making it up as he goes and not. So I wanted to try to get some insight from the inside of what's really going on. And I figured John, since he's. the uh, most honest democrat uh, on the national level that I've certainly ever run into in my own life and because he's a good friend here he is now uh, congressman uh, John Yarmouth democrat my good friend uh, from Louisville Kentucky uh, John welcome back to the podcast thanks john good to be with you as always well i haven't talked to you in a long time so i i want to i want to congratulate you uh, and and your fellow democrats on pulling off something that is extraordinary uh losing an election that was not losable and and then getting pretty much everything you wanted uh how did that how did that happen i don't know but i don't think it was uh by anybody's preconceived strategy <laughs> i think it, this has been a, a an alice in wonderland year if there ever has been one well that's for sure so let's talk about some of the details now as i think you're aware uh, one of the many many objections that i have uh, have had to donald trump is it having lived here in California i i've seen this movie before uh, i saw it with arnold schwarzenegger where he pretended to be a republican saw some resistance and then immediately flipped into being a, a very liberal democrat for his own survival 
his reelection and his popularity because, you know, he's a celebrity and, and celebrities want to be loved. And I felt that Trump was going to be doing the same thing. It, uh, am I overreacting to say that this was the week that uh, Trump turned into Schwarzenegger? No, I, th- I think that's probably true. Um, you know, so much has been going on in, in terms of the White House-Congress relationship over the years that, that really hasn't been discussed much in public. But there was a narrative growing that uh, at, at some point Trump became irrelevant to the legislative process. And it was kind of like, okay, Mitch and Ryan are going to decide what happens. And, and, Mitch and Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan. And I think in that meeting the other day, Trump, aware of that narrative, <laughs> saw an opportunity to, first of all, stick it to Mitch, whom he doesn't like, and, and secondly, to push back on that narrative. And so he, you know, he just spat in the face of his Treasury Secretary and, and his Vice President and both uh, leaders of Congress and said, you know, you know, you're messing with me, don't mess with me. And I don't think it had anything to do with the policy. It was just his opportunity to, um, you know, to change the, the course of the reality show. So you, so you view what Trump did this week not as any long-term thinking or anything having to do with policy or even politics necessarily, but purely because on this particular day it felt good to him. I mean, I think that's the way Donald Trump operates. I, I, I really don't believe that Donald Trump thinks more than 30 seconds ahead. And it's Are a, you sure I, it's that long, John? Are you- <laughs> okay, I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt. But clearly, he, clearly he, he never thinks about the consequences of what he does. And what he did was to severely damage any, any chance he has of being trustworthy for for McConnell and um, and Ryan. Well, there's so many different elements I want to get your insight on, but but let's go to the Republican side here. You've been very outspoken in the past because I, I know you guys talk behind closed doors, Democrats and Republicans. At least some of them some of them do. And since you know you you seem reasonable, I'm sure a lot of Republicans uh, talk to you uh, behind closed doors. What would you say? Let's do the scale of one to ten again. What's the level of GOP freakout over what happened this week with regard to Trump? Um. Woo, on 10 being the most severe, I would say it's, um, it's nine and a half. Nine and a half? Yeah. Okay, so there's a nine and a half level freak out. Is there, <laughs> is there, can you share, obviously without giving any names, the, the most dramatic response from a Republican that you've seen this week to, to them realizing that their president really isn't a Republican? Um, well, I think most of them already knew that. They've been trying to navigate this crazy, um, these crazy political waters for months now. Uh, but one of, them, one of them said to me when we were in the airport coming home on, on Friday um, that he said, obviously Trump's dead to me now. And was that surprising to you based upon who this, Congress, this Republican congressman was? Um, a, a little bit, not totally, but a little bit, because he's not one. You know, he, it wasn't like Thomas Massey from Kentucky, who's kind of in the um, in the um, uh, libertarian segment of the party, where he was never really particularly sold on Trump anyway. But it was somebody from around the the region who said that to me, and and somebody who had actually 
was had been working with Trump and thinking that maybe there was a chance that things could work out. Now, one of the things that you have said, which really caught my attention and has gotten uh, some uh, media coverage, is that you have predicted on this podcast and other places that eventually Mitch McConnell, a guy who you know exceedingly well, you're from the same state, uh, you disagree on virtually everything, you, you, don't, really, you don't really like each other, uh, but you know him very well, you have predicted that Mitch McConnell would eventually do in Donald Trump for what he would view as the betterment of the country. By the way, is that a fair assessment of, of what your projection on McConnell and Trump has been? Yeah, that, that's pretty, pretty accurate. Yeah. And, and I actually think that in, in the uh, debate on the repeal, of, uh, well, it was never really a repeal, but in, in the changes to the Affordable Care Act, uh, that Mitch uh, kind of demonstrated that. I don't th- I, I'm convinced, and I can argue it, I think, very compellingly, Mitch never wanted to pass a bill uh, because he was more concerned, and he remains more concerned about uh, holding his majority than he does about anything else, including what happens to Donald Trump, for sure. Do you still believe that, that Mitch McConnell will figure out a way to get rid of Trump? Um, I think he will. If, if there is an opportunity, he will take it. All right. Well, we'll talk about that shortly because I want to talk about you know, where this is all headed. Uh, but I also want to follow up on what you said about the Obamacare repeal. So do you believe that Republicans took a dive? And, and do you believe that, for instance, McCain's vote no, that famous vote no, was... was uh, actually a, a scam instituted by McConnell? Um, I'm not sure it was planned, but I, I, I know for sure that Mitch knew well ahead of time that McCain was going to vote that way. And if you were up in the middle of the night that night... I was. ...and, and <laughs> watched, what, watched Mitch's reaction, and then when he, he took the floor to make a statement, uh, he was totally prepared and knew exactly what he wanted to say after that thing went down. And it was, I, I thought, the most telling sign yet that he, he actually never wanted that to pass. Uh, you know, I talked to a number of people on the Republican side and people in the Senate who said Mitch, was n- Mitch never worked that bill. He never tried to convince anybody to vote for it. And I'm, I'm convinced without knowing for sure that he told some people that it was fine with him if it went down. All right, let's talk about some of the specifics that occurred this week and in the week that I will probably always remember as the Schwarzenegger week because it became official that Trump was making his pivot, although you opened up the possibility that this is temporary, which I'm open to. But specifically, let's talk first about DACA. And I wrote a column about this for Media where I go through the, the, the likely scenarios. There's basically four likely scenarios of how this is all going to play out. And three of them, I think, are huge wins for you guys, the Democrats. And the fourth is, at best, an embarrassing draw uh, for Trump, mainly because of the six-month delay and the fact that Trump has already telegraphed that he's bluffing. Uh, and that he'll, uh, so uh, what, 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 do you think I'm accurate in that assessment? Well, clearly, yeah. And, you know, before basically before the the dust settled after uh, taking the executive action, he was he was backtracking and saying if things don't go well, he'll revisit it in six months. So he, you know, this is one of those other instances where he he wanted the applause. He doesn't care where he gets the applause from, but when the applause didn't occur, he started looking in other places for it. So he he backtracked. So, 
what do you think will happen there with DACA? Well, right now I know where, where the Democratic caucus in the House is, and I, I'm pretty sure I know where the Democratic caucus in the Senate is, and that is that the leverage that we gained uh, this week uh, that will occur in December, both with the debt ceiling and keeping the government open through government funding, uh, both we, we are not going to use the debt ceiling as, as the leverage point, but keeping the government open is where we will say, if there is no DREAM Act, then we will shut the we'll we'll, sh- we'll allow the government to shut down um, and see what who pays the price for that. I think virtually every Democrat in the House is committed to that position, and I think most of the Democrats in the Senate are. So you're referring to Congressman Gutierrez's threat that over the DREAM Act, unless the DREAM Act is is passed effectively in a clean fashion that you guys are going to allow the government to shut down. You believe that the, 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 the vast majority of the Democratic caucus is on board with that plan. That's right, that we, that we won't vote for a funding bill on December, on December 8th or whatever the date is. Okay, uh, keep, keep let, the let's, government open. let's play that out. Yep. So um, under that scenario, though, if Republicans all band together – that's not going to matter, right? I mean, what, what, what's going to happen under that well, scenario? That's the whole, well, that's, that's the leverage we have. And, then, and what happened in the meeting at the White House the other day was when they kept arguing over whether there should be an 18-month um, extension of the debt limit and, and debt ceiling and some of the other people wanted a, a longer-term funding bill, and we kept Chuck Schumer and Nancy kept saying three months, three months, and they and Nancy finally said, "Do you have the votes? If you have the votes, this meeting's over, and you do whatever you want." And of course, they couldn't. They didn't have the votes, and they won't have the votes on December eighth for any particular spending bill. So they're going to need Democratic votes if they want to keep the government open. They're going to have to have us. They have every time, every vote for um, appropriations, spending bill for the last, uh, well, since 2011, has required Democratic votes. That's the only leverage we have in the House, particularly um, on at any time during, <laughs> during and the ironic, year. And ironically, that's because of the, the Freedom Caucus, right? I mean, Exactly, yeah. Right. So it's yeah. because of the real conservatives in Congress that the Democrats actually have leverage on this issue. Uh, that's exactly right. That's <laughs> it. This is an Alice in Wonderland world. <laughs> God, I hate politics in this in this era. Um, okay, so uh, so let's plan this out then. So Trump, I think, correct me if you think I'm wrong. In his, everyone always, you know, his fans think he's playing uh, chess, but I I don't even think he's playing checkers. I think he's playing right. shoots and ladder. Um, but but in the, in the Trump fan world where he's playing chess. He's going to get some concession out of you guys from for the wall, for instance. He's going to get the wall out of the passing of the DREAM Act, which to me, even that wouldn't be a good deal because now you're codifying into law something that I was told up until a few weeks ago was illegal and horrible as an executive order, but now it's going to be law. But even that deal, as bad as I think that is, I don't sense from what you're telling me that that's got a chance in the world of ever passing. Is that, am I right about that? No, not if it involves the wall, no. I mean, the, our leadership has told uh, Trump, and as well as Mitch and, and Paul Ryan, that there is no deal under which Democrats 
supply any votes for the building of a wall. That's just off the table. And I think now Trump's figured that out. I think he's convinced that's the case. And I I believe that uh, Mitch and Paul Ryan believe that as well. All right. So to be clear, from a political standpoint, you see what Trump did on DACA this week as likely a big winner for you guys, correct? I I think it will be a big winner. Yes. Almost under any... First, first because I think Trump alienated once again a huge portion of voters. And secondly, because we're going to be the ones that save them. And not either that or you'll shut down the government, but you won't get any real blame for that. Um, And, and, you know, from a political standpoint, uh, you, even if let's pretend he's not bluffing, which I think he is, but let's pretend Congress does nothing. And six months from now, he ends DACA in the, at the beginning of an election year, you guys aren't going to really politically, you're not going to be weeping over that. Right. I mean, that, that you're, you're, you're pretty, uh, your, your voters are going to be pretty jazzed, right? Oh, I would think so. Yeah. I mean, that's clearly, you know, I think on our side, there is a 100% commitment to, to um, saving the dreamers. And it's, it comes from kind of the soul of the party. Uh, so that, that's the first concern. It's not, it's not a political consideration, but there's no question that I think we would benefit politically from that, that scenario. You believe he's bluffing, though, right? He's not going to end DACA, right? No, he doesn't. No, I, I don't think he even. I don't even think he agrees with what he did. I agree. <laughs> so, I agree. I agree yeah. with you totally. I don't think he cares at all about this. I yeah. think. I think he made a promise during the campaign that made him feel uncomfortable, and he. he and to your point, just for a day or two. He did something that got it off of his hands uh, without realizing that long term he's created a bigger problem. I mean, is that do you agree with that? Exactly. Okay. Once, once again, he, he to, to use your your a metaphor, he, he he does not play chess. Right. He's, <laughs> no. Yeah. He's a, he's a very poor checkers player at best. Okay. Right. Now right. now the other element that that was maybe even more dramatic with regard to the to the upending of the of the party structure was this uh, debt ceiling deal with Harvey Relief and uh, Trump deciding to do a deal with with people who I was told were the devil uh, just until you know, a few days ago. Nancy yeah. Pelosi and, and Chuck Schumer. Now you're right. the ranking committee uh, ranking member of the, of the budget committee. I, I'm assuming you were at least in the loop on this, were you? Right. Yes. Okay. So based upon what you know, having been in the loop on on these quote unquote negotiations, is there anything that you guys didn't get that you wanted? Um, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so for the, to be clear, not that yeah, you know, I mean, we would have loved to have had a commitment to uh, to pay the cost sharing reductions on, under Obamacare and some of these other ancillary things that are going on, but in terms of any <coughs> anything, <coughs> excuse me, anything in the realm of possibilities of that uh, that negotiation, no, there was nothing we didn't get. So, to put it in more frank terms. There, there's no uh, question whatsoever in your mind that uh, Chuck and Nancy won that negotiation, correct? Oh, totally won it. Totally won it. And believe me, they, they on um, Friday morning, or Thursday morning, it was Thursday morning, I guess, they, um, they looked like victorious warriors when, we, when they appeared before our caucus. <laughs> and, 
What, what did they tell you? Well, they, they both uh, just really relished recounting the, the, uh, the scene in the, in the Oval Office, and um, they were actually kind of telling stories on the other, complimenting each other for what they were doing. And at one point, um, I think Chuck was telling the story about Nancy, that Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, was arguing for an 18-month extension of the debt ceiling, and that he said in, you know, was talking about the, the importance of this to the financial markets and how Wall Street would react and so forth. And Nancy stood up and said, Mr. Secretary, you may know a lot about Wall Street, but in this body, in the Congress, the coin of the realm is votes. If you have the votes, <laughs> the discussion's over. <laughs> if you don't have the votes, it's three months. And... Uh, that was kind of the argument that was going back and forth. And then finally, of course, Trump just said, okay, everybody, it's three months. So Trump caved. Trump caved. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which, which but is... right, he caved right in the face of an, uh, uh, a very passionate argument from his Treasury Secretary. <laughs> oh, God. oh, good Lord. Uh, <laughs> by, by the way, one thing on uh, Harvey, on the Harvey uh, relief package, I. I, mm-hmm. I I, I realize this is a, a sticky uh, subject, but uh, how much of this money? Because whenever you throw billions of dollars at a, at a disaster, I always get nervous. Uh, is there any concern about um, waste and, and exploitation of these types of uh, situations where you have a disaster and there's that much money being thrown at it at one time? Um, well, there's concern. I, I don't think in this particular instance, there was a lot of concern over waste of this first tranche of money. So this seven, seven to eight, it was almost $8 billion in direct aid that, that went to FEMA. Uh, FEMA was running out of money on a, almost by hour by hour. So, I mean, they were putting out so much money that we knew that this money was no, there was no chance of this money being wasted, the initial tranche. Now, when you start talking about numbers like 150 billion then everybody gets a little antsy yeah because i mean it's just the nature of humanity that in these circumstances when it's there's this much catastrophe and this it's happening this quickly it's it's inevitable that you're going to see uh you know potential corruption or at the very least waste so i i always get antsy about this and of course i'm always also wondering you know are we really obligated to what are we obligated obviously we're obligated to do certain things but are we obligated to do everything for people that that live in a hurricane corridor? I, I it just I I, I just wonder yeah. about that. No, um, no, no. I think that's a really important discussion that we have to have, and it'll be interesting to see if we actually have it. I'm sure we won't because yeah. it's it's politically but, incorrect. It's it's yeah, but it, but it you know, but people are already saying that because it was like okay, Sandy, you know, the Texas legislators all voted against, except for one, voted against. Sandy relief, and now it's their turn, and they're you know, and they're right. obviously going to take a different position. So, but I think the real fundamental question, which you raised and is very valid, is how much of the responsibility is the federal government? How much is the, the presumably, well, at least for, according to the statistics, the eighty-five percent of homeowners who refuse to buy flood insurance, right? Exactly. <laughs> and how much is the responsibility of the of Houston, and how much is the responsibility of Texas? And that's going to be 
a very, very serious debate. It cannot be totally the federal government's responsibility. Right. Okay, a couple more quick things in the time that we have with mm-hmm. you, and I want to get to where we're headed with this. But uh, Trump is now trying to signal that finally we're going to go to tax reform, uh, which to me should have been the first thing he did, uh, not wait until his approval rating is at 34, 35 percent to go to tax reform. Uh, His his rhetoric seems to have changed slightly to be a little bit more uh, amenable to Democrats. At least that was my perception of what I I read that he said uh, today. But what is your view as the, the ranking member on the budget committee and, uh, and someone who knows uh, how Democrats are going to react uh, to this type of situation, what is your view of the, the prospects for major tax reform now? I think the prospects for major tax reform are somewhere in, on a scale, I mean, on a percentage basis, somewhere in single digits. Really? Yeah. Be- and, it's, and because why? Because no one can get a, a consensus? Is that why? Or Yeah, well, <laughs> first of all, you know, the principles espoused by the administration, and we've never seen a detailed piece of legislation out of either the administration or anybody in Congress, but the principles that they've advanced um, are, are such that they're not only uh, offensive to Democrats, they're offensive to most Americans, and that is that you're going to, for instance, cut uh, every, virtually every rich person's rate to 15, corp, uh, tax rate to 15% which is what the effect of the Trump proposal is. And, I mean, that's just a non-starter. One, one nonpartisan uh, organization tax and, uh, and analysis said that, and I'm not, I think this is kind of almost too crazy to be believed, but their analysis was 99.6% of the benefit of the Trump proposals goes to the top 1% of the public. So... You know, those types of things are not politically saleable, and they can't be passed. And so um, there, are, there are things that are in the proposals that make sense. You know, one of the things that, that, are, that is being proposed is doubling the standard dedu- deduction, which actually does help middle-income Americans. That's something that it by itself might have some political traction. Yeah. But again, if you if you couple that with these enormous breaks for yeah. the wealthiest Americans, it's going to be hard to sell. No, I, I agree with you, and it, mainly because even on the Republican side, there's never going to be a consensus of priorities. Like for instance, you're always going to have a segment that is that is forever and ever going to be holding out to end the estate tax, and and That's right. and, and and so those people are never going to agree to anything that doesn't have that in there, <laughs> and and you guys are never going to agree to it because you think that it's mostly rich people that are are helped by that. So yeah. I, uh, yeah, and the tax right now, you know, we've already made changes in the estate tax, so every state up to $10 million is already exempt. No, I, 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 under, I understand that, yep. and um, I, I get it, but it's still, it's still a, as you know, an issue that uh, sparks a lot of passion in people. Sure. Um, and, and when you got a president who no one trusts and who has a 35% approval rating, <laughs> you're not going to be in a small majority with a, with a party he's barely a member of, uh, that doesn't bode well for, <laughs> no, for, no, no. for for trying to create major reform. One other, before we get to, I do want to get to where we're going to go with this. One other substantive question, and I, I know you're not like uh, super. Uh, well, I, I know I shouldn't uh, uh, state that, but I, it's my impression that it's not like you, you're obsessed with Russia. Uh, you think Russia is an important issue, uh, right. but it, you know you're not on uh, in you know in any of the, the the committees that are really into that. Um, I know nothing that that you don't know or. Anybody who's following it. Right. Okay, there we go. Fair enough. But here's here's my question. With Hillary's book coming out and, you know, she's getting criticized for excuses and all that, 
I have to tell you, John, and this may or may not surprise you, as the more we learn, especially this week about uh, Russia and Facebook and, and Twitter, I don't know how much you saw this yeah. week, um, I'm starting to believe that Russia might have made the difference here, uh, especially when you look at how low her turnout was in places like Wisconsin. And, I, and it blows my mind, by the way, that people always rip on her, oh, she never visited Wisconsin. Had she visited Wisconsin in the last week of that campaign, she would have been mocked based upon where the polls were. There was no chance she was losing Wisconsin based upon the polls. Um, and, and so the more I look at this, I think Russia might have made the difference with, with the, the ability to reduce her turnout through these underground Facebook and Twitter accounts. Uh, and I'm curious what your perspective on that is. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, any of us who are in this game understand that it's, that it's not like there's going to be a factor that's going to move 30% of the electorate. You don't need to do that because uh, you, you never can. Every election in, this, in the United States is you're, you're playing for about 15% of voters. And if you can move 3%, you change a lot of elections. And, I, you know, that's, that's what most political operatives strategize to do. And clearly the Russians were, you know, they know that. So you don't have to move an awful lot of votes, particularly in a place like Wisconsin or, or in Michigan or in Pennsylvania, to, to, to swing the election. And, yeah, any factor like that. And, and it, this, when you consider social media, it seems like it was a, the, the impact was a little broader than we might have anticipated before. The reach of, of those efforts. I, I and, agree. I, yeah. I mean, and, and we learned a lot about that this week, and I think we're probably going to learn more when when Mueller finally uh, releases his report. Okay, right. so so let's talk a little bit in our last couple minutes here about where we go here, because to me, we're in an unprecedented political situation, and you know, I, I really respect uh, your honesty and and intellect when it comes to uh, assessing the the political landscape, and so so we have a situation here where. The alleged Republican president is toxic to your voters. You, your voters hate him. They think he is racist. They, they think he's an idiot. Uh, they, they think he was probably elected illegitimately. And yet, we now, based upon this week, have a set of circumstances where you guys probably feel like you can effectively use and manipulate <laughs> him as your own president. Um, first of all, do you agree with that assessment? I, I think there is the, that maybe this last week a light bulb went off with some of us that that, that might be possible. Yeah. So, and, and, and if you play it perfectly, you guys can get everything you want with none of the blame. Because cause he is be, always going to be perceived as a Republican. Your, your voters won't hold it against you, really, because you're getting what you want. And they... But Trump won't get any of the love that he thinks he's going to get because your voters are never going to change their mind about him. Am I right about this? Well, that, that part's right. The, the, the one reservation I would have about that analysis is that his voters, the, a certain segment of his voters, the ones that we need to win to control the House and, and maybe to take back the Senate, are uh, probably not going to desert him over that. And that's the that's the real wild card in that whole whole analysis that you've laid out, is it, is that white working class voter who's you know should be a Democrat according to our thinking, um, whom we can't win, um, 
is is that voter going to be turned off by Trump enough to come to a to a Democrat? That, well, that, look, that look, remains to be seen. Look, you guys have the ability to pull, uh, you know, defeat out of the jaws of victory. Right. Uh, so yeah. it's quite possible that you'll screw it up. You'll probably overplay your hand in some way, which is what you guys usually do. Yeah. But um, when I look at this, and I think I look at the landscape, I go, all right, if this, if we go down the Schwarzenegger path. Uh, Republican, you're going you're to have uh, the Bannons of the world ripping the Republican elite, which he's already doing. You're going to have the president doing nothing to help Republicans get elected. He's going to be acting at best like a third-party president. You're going to have Republicans with half a brain completely demoralized and, and staying home, seeing no real reason to, to come out, and yet you're still going to have your base jazzed up because you guys have been thirsting for a redo of 2016 and we'll have plenty of reasons to do so more so by 2018. So under those circumstances, that's a pretty darn good equation for you guys. But I guess my, I guess my question for you, John is, you know, this issue of impeachment has been bubbling underneath the surface, obviously Mm -hmm. uh, ever since Mueller. And so let's, let's say that this goes as you hope and as I think, where you guys get some sort of majority in the House and it's, you know, maybe even the Senate, although that'd be more difficult because of the numbers. And you're going to still have a, a good portion of your base thirsting for impeachment. Yet you're going to have a president who you're going to be able to manipulate <laughs> and have do anything you want. At that point, what is your caucus going to decide what to do? What, what? Oh, that's that's a great question, John. I have no, I have no idea. Uh, give us the majority first, and we'll, we'll work on that. That's kind of how I think everybody feels now. But uh, you know, I think there is a you see the quandary, I think, right? I, yeah, I, but I think our our caucus is is pretty realistic overall about impeachment. That um, you know, the, it would take the smoking gun on Russia or something else for us to be able to get two-thirds of, um, of the House to vote for an impeachment resolution. We'll never have a two-thirds majority. So You mean in the uh, Senate? You're talking about in the Senate. The because, Senate, right. Yeah, you, you yeah, well, no, I mean, we, yeah, that's right, in the Senate, yeah. So, um, yeah, we can but, get but an see, impeachment but resolution through the House. But, but, there's, but here's the thing, though, John, mm-hmm. and this gets back to what you said at the beginning of this interview about Mitch McConnell. Aren't we living in a bizarre world, this Alice in Wonderland, where if you guys decide, you know what, we're going to impeach the guy, presuming that he'll never be removed because it's impossible in the Senate. Right. And then McConnell flips on him once get, given the opportunity to get rid of him and does exactly what you've been predicting, and Trump does get removed with Republican yeah. votes. That's, it's entirely possible. Yeah, again, the one thing about impeachment, having lived through the, um, you know, I was, I was, on Capitol Hill as a staffer during the Nixon proceedings and having watched Clinton, uh, ultimately it, it is a, that really is a national political event. And it, it's got to be something that is never perceived as a, as a partisan thing. And well, I think, there, I, I think it's going to be hilarious. But, it, 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 but you may be right. I mean, it, yeah, because Mitch, Mitch could um, actually say it's better for the country, better for my Republican <laughs> Uh, position in the Senate if we have Mike Pence as president. I, I think if you guys take the House, there's several ifs here. I, if you guys take the House, 
I think that there is a reasonable, and Mueller comes up with something decent, both of which are very reasonable. I think we're going to see a bizarre world situation where half of each caucus is for impeachment. (laughs) (laughs) Could be the best thing that ever happened to the country. All right, John, always great to talk to you. Let's let's talk uh, off the air sometime soon and catch up, and uh, we appreciate your time. Okay, say hello to Allison and Gracie and the new one. Diana. uh, Yeah, Diana, yes. All right, thanks, John. Oh, good job. Take, Take care. care. That's John Yarmouth, Congressman Democrat uh, from Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, the most honest Democrat I know, and always great to talk to him. And uh, look, I'm not predicting that, that Trump is going to be removed from office. I, I'm not. I, I just think that the ground is shifting as we speak in dramatic ways that are very similar to Schwarzenegger. But the difference between Trump and Schwarzenegger is Schwarzenegger was never nearly this toxic with Democrats. He could flip. And Democrats would be okay with that because he's a movie star and he, he wasn't seen as a racist, even though maybe he should have been based upon his history. But that's another whole story. So he, he was just perceived different. He was a Hollywood star. He was kind of one of them. He was married to Maria Shriver, for heaven's sakes, a Kennedy. So it was easy for him to make that switch. And he did. And I predicted it before anybody else did here in California. And I predicted it with Trump. And I was right about Trump. But I don't know that. Trump has the same options that Schwarzenegger did, and and John pretty much articulated that. It's going to be a fascinating political decision by by Democrats in the House and the Senate as to where they go with this. Do they silently manipulate him? Do they openly support him? Do they keep him at arm's length while getting what they can? And if impeachment is on the table, do they really want to get rid of him? Why would they want to get rid of him? He'd be the greatest thing for them. He gives them what they want. He's an unpopular president, likely wouldn't be reelected unless the Democrats come up with a, a candidate as horrible as Hillary, which is certainly possible. But the reality is they would be getting a lot out of this deal and that having a president Pence would be bad for them to get rid of this deal because Pence wouldn't give Democrats whatever they wanted and he wouldn't be nearly as toxic. So, um, it's going to be bizarre. It's going to be fascinating. I, you know, no one. I don't think it's possible to know exactly how it's all going to come down, but uh, we're heading for clearly unprecedented territory here. And uh, I think my credibility should be pretty high based upon the Schwarzenegger prediction in and of itself, because that's exactly what's happening in exactly the same way and almost exactly the same timing. Now we just got to see where all the pieces end up falling. And then when the dust settles, what's actually happening? But what I'll tell you what's not happening. There's no winning. Where the hell's the winning? Where the hell is all the winning? I was promised I would be tired of winning by now. You know who's winning? John Yarmus winning. He was laughing there at Trump. They got everything they wanted this week. And none of the blame. Thanks, guys. Good work, everybody. All right, that'll do it for this week's World According to Zig podcast. As always, I ask only two things of you. Make sure you share this uh, podcast via social media, Twitter, Facebook, what have you, and word of mouth. And also, um, make sure that uh, you do yourself a favor. And if you're one of those people who sleeps, and when you sleep, you use sheets, pay attention to this important message. My name is John Zickler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah, they're made from super high-tech performance fabric. 
They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh, no wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well... <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mmm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should... Oh, I don't know. Try them out again? <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.